This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and holy word comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for another opportunity to gather to worship you, to uh, be reminded of your greatness, of your care, of all that you've done for us, especially in this time of Advent where we're looking back and remembering uh, the fact that the, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, took on flesh to come and rescue us, to redeem us, to ransom us. And God, that is such good news. It's news that has changed all of our lives and it shapes who we are day by day so lord please remind us of that remind us of that as we sing as we pray as we uh, as we look at your word and lord would you fill us with joy as that's what we're looking at today that we would be filled with joy in you lord we do know that there are many difficult circumstances that people face we're walking through this life tainted by sin and difficulty and Um, sometimes we're just so much more aware of our need for you than others. We should always be aware of that need, but when times are difficult, when they're hard, when we're struggling with with health and loss and uh, all of these these things that are just part of being in this world, Lord, we recognize so clearly how much we need you. So God, I pray for each person, each member of this congregation who is struggling right now, whatever situation they're in, we pray that you would meet them, that you would draw near to them, 
And Lord, in fact, we know that you are near to them. So pray that you would remind them of that fact. Help them to be abundantly aware of your care and your love for them. God, we pray for, for the peace, hope, joy, and love that only you can provide. And we pray that knowing that you're faithful to give that to your people. So we pray with expectation, with hope, and with joy. God, I pray for this morning as, as we look at Isaiah, and I pray that, that uh, your word would be heard. I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our hearts. I pray that the words I say would be those that you would have me to say and that you would shape us, that you would mold us, that you would be glorified in all that happens here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. So if you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to keep them open to Isaiah 35. That's where we're going to be spending this morning. So as you know, we are in the middle of the Christmas season. We've got all the lights and everything reminding us of that all the time. And one of, I think, the best parts of the Christmas season is Christmas movies. Everybody likes their own flavor. You've got some people who absolutely love the cheesy Hallmark movie marathons. I am not one of those. You also have people who just stick with the classics. you got to watch It's a Wonderful Life every year. Also a good choice. For me and my family, we're an Elf family. Elf is the staple every year we got to watch it. Now, if you haven't seen Elf, Elf is the story of this orphan baby who somehow crawls into Santa's pack as he's delivering presents, and he gets taken to the North Pole. Since he's an orphan, they decide to raise him as one of their own, and he grows up as an Elf. Eventually, when he's three to four times the size of all the other elves, he realizes that he's a human, and he wants to go out into the world and find out who he really is. He wants to meet his dad. So he strikes off into the world. He goes into New York City, and he's excited about this. He's got high expectations, but as he gets there, some of those expectations kind of get dashed. He walks out of the woods. He sees a raccoon. He wants to hug the raccoon, but the raccoon attacks him. He gets to New York City. He finds out that New York City people aren't quite as friendly as the people at the North Pole. He finds out that you can't eat all of the gum that you see stuck to places in the subway. His expectations are not met. His circumstances aren't quite what he had hoped they would be. So at one point, he finds himself in this department store that's all decked out for Christmas. And of course, him being dressed as an elf, he's mistaken for an employee. The manager's talking to him, explaining to him what he needs to do, and then the manager pauses, and he looks around to all the shoppers, and he says, attention, everybody. At 10 o'clock tomorrow, Santa's going to be here. And Buddy the Elf stops. His eyes get huge, and he says, Santa! I know him. He's so excited, and he is so filled with joy, even in the midst of these circumstances that weren't quite what he thought it was going to be. It's a real and exuberant joy, but Isaiah 35 calls us as the people of God to an infinitely deeper joy that is rooted in an infinitely deeper expectation. It's the expectation of a coming king. See, scripture often instructs us and calls us to be joyful and to rejoice. We just heard in the prayer of confession the, the call to rejoice. Again, I say it, rejoice. But if we're honest, a lot of times we don't feel like rejoicing. We don't feel particularly joyful. And often with good reason. Life is hard. 
whether it's because we're dealing with sickness or illness, whether it's the struggle against sin, whether it's just being downcast because of COVID or Michigan weather, there's always something that gives us an excuse not to be joyful. So when scripture says over and over again, be joyful, rejoice, we have to ask why. Why should I rejoice? What is my reason? What is my root for rejoicing? And Isaiah gives the people of God an answer in chapter 35. He tells us that the joy of the redeemed is rooted in the expectation of the coming king, not in our current circumstances. The joy of the redeemed is rooted in the expectation of our coming king, not in our current circumstances. So we're now in the 35th chapter of Isaiah. So he's written 34 chapters before this, and many of those chapters are just packed full of judgment. It's judgment on the nations because they've been sinful, they've rejected God. There's also passages about about the discipline and judgment that's going to come to Israel, that's going to come to the people of God because they have been sinful and have rejected God. And there's interspersed in there lots of really uplifting passages. Isaiah has some of the heaviest and some of the most joyful passages in all of Scripture. But after all this heaviness and all this weight about the judgment that's coming, Isaiah gets to chapter 35. And it is this beautiful poem. It's this beautiful passage of hope and joy and expectation. And he's writing it to a people, to Israel, that are in a situation that is dark, that is dry, that is discouraging. If you remember, Israel had been one nation, but then they split. So now you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They're a kingdom divided. And at this point, when Isaiah writes... The northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria, so now they're no longer their own thing because Assyria has come in and, and taken over. And when Isaiah's writing, he's in the southern kingdom, and Assyria is kind of breathing down their neck. They're threatening. They're going to come after Judah next. They're going to take out the southern kingdom. Imagine if our enemies were on our borders. The, the U.S. is too big. Say Michigan. Say there's some army just outside of Michigan, and they're threatening to come in and take us over. The kind of fear that we would have. These are the people that Isaiah is writing to. And he's telling them in the midst of that, it's dark, and it's difficult, and it's going to get more difficult. Because God is judging you. God is disciplining you. But there is hope, and there's something to look forward to. That's what he writes in, in Isaiah 35. Now, we're in the Advent season, and it's good for us to look back. We look at these Old Testament passages because all through the Old Testament, we see this anticipation, this waiting, this expectation of the king that was to come. Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus came, but it's not just that 700 years. It goes back to Abraham, to Moses. It goes all the way back to Genesis when the fall happened and God first promised that someone would come, that the seed of the woman would come and would set things right that had been broken in the fall. The people of God had been waiting for thousands of years, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the king to come. And in the midst of that, if you read through the Old Testament, there are a lot of dark and difficult and discouraging passages. They were in captivity in Egypt. Then they went through all these ups and downs through the judges. Then, then they end up, uh, splitting 
when they're finally a nation, they end up splitting. Then they get conquered by Assyria. And then the southern kingdom gets carried off by Babylon. There's lots of reasons for them not to have joy, for them to be discouraged. Yet Isaiah and other prophets, God consistently sends prophets to tell the people, my promises are true. The king is coming. The Messiah is coming. They're called to joy, not because of the circumstances they were in, but because what God was going to do. Their joy was to be rooted in the expectation of the coming king, not their current circumstances. Now let's look at Isaiah 35. See how that matches up with our lives today. Let's look at our circumstances. Verse 1 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Isaiah takes out his paintbrush and he paints this beautiful picture for us. He wants us to see, before he goes on and he explains what he's calling us to, he wants us to see this picture of a desert that's dry and dying, where it's hard for things to live. See this picture of a desert suddenly blossoming and coming to life. There's flowers and colors. And now this place that was that was that was dry and dying is now full of life. It's an oasis. It's a kind of transformation that only God can do. And notice how he starts out. He's talking very joyfully. He uses these words like rejoice, be glad, be filled with joy. then notice also words that are throughout this whole passage words like shall and will words that look forward to something that is to come so it's not necessarily right now because everything is so great but because these things are going to happen this desert is going to bloom into a garden these things are going to happen in the future and why are they going to happen Because as it says at the end of verse 2, because the desert shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. That joy is not just rooted in circumstances. That joy is not something that, that we're to conjure up, but that's rooted in who God is and what he's going to do. And of course we know Isaiah is not just talking about deserts. He's not just talking about landscapes. He's not giving gardening tips. Isaiah is talking about us the dryness that we experience in this life that's so affected and so impacted by the fall. Now, I would think that probably every one of us has had this experience at some time or another where you are dead asleep, very restful sleep, and then suddenly you wake up and your throat is parched. You just want to keep sleeping, but you are so thirsty that you can't. So you stumble out of bed, eyes half open, get to the kitchen, and you just drink and drink and drink trying to satisfy that thirst because it just feels like you're going to be miserable. You can't sleep. You cannot rest because you are so dry. We've had that experience, but we have that experience in a deeper way in life. When we experience the dryness of maybe we feel far from God, we feel like our lives are not rich like they should be. We should have all this joy, 
We should be in a place or a place that we feel like we should be, but we're not. So we feel dry. We feel discouraged. Those are the deserts that Isaiah is talking about. So before he even goes on and explains more, he wants us to see that the God that he's talking about is the one who can cause those deserts to bloom. He can turn them into a garden. Then he moves on and he gives us a bit more detail in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah's pointing out that he recognizes the human condition. He goes from talking about the, the desert to talking about those people who live in the desert, which is all of us. In the church and out of the church, we recognize that we've got problems, that life is difficult. He uses specific language of, of weak hands. So for those of us in the church, we know that we've been called to live in the way that God desires of us. Our works don't save us. Our obedience doesn't save us. But God still lays out how we as Christians should live. But he points out that we often have weak hands. We find it difficult to do those things. Even though we know we should do them, it's hard. He talks about those with feeble knees, those who, who feel weighed down by the pressures of life, by sin, by discouragement, and feel like they just aren't even going to be able to stand. They could collapse at any moment under everything that's bearing down on them. He talks about those with anxious hearts, those who are discouraged, those who are depressed, those who are fearful, those who struggle to believe the promises that God laid out in Scripture. At some point or another, every one of us can relate to those descriptions in some way. And if you look at the world, they recognize those same problems, that life is hard, that life is difficult. They don't recognize the root of the problem, but they recognize the problem. But their answer is just look inside yourself. Buck up, kiddo, you can do it. You can do this. Just try harder. But Isaiah gives a very different and much better answer. He says, behold, your God, your God will come with vengeance. And when he's talking about vengeance, it means he's coming to wipe out all of those things that make us so dry. He's coming to conquer sin and death and depression. Our God will come with vengeance. Our God will come and save you. So he calls the church to encourage each other. When we're in those dry times, we should be encouraging each other and building one another up with passages like this that remind us that our God is coming. Our God is coming to save us. When Isaiah writes, Judah has this Assyrian army bearing down on their door, threatening to knock them out. And he writes to the people of God saying, fear not. It's tough right now. It's scary, but God will come to save you. He is in control, and that is every bit as much true today as it was when Isaiah wrote. <clears throat> so it's good for us to stop and to take stock of our circumstances. It's good to be honest about where we're at. 
That's one of the reasons that an elder comes up here every week and leads us in a confession of sin, because it's good for us to acknowledge our weak hands and our feeble knees. It's a good thing to be aware of, of the news. Watch and see what's happening. Be honest about the fact that it's awful that there are still school shootings. It's awful that there are tornadoes that rip through and kill hundreds of people. It's discouraging, it's difficult, and it causes us to ask why. We need to look at those things and be honest about our circumstances, but church, do not hope to find joy there because you won't find it there. Our joy is not in our circumstances. Our joy is in the fact that our God will come and save us. Hebrews 3, 13, the author tells us to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up every day, as long as it is called today. We're supposed to do that because our king is coming. That's where our joy is found. Not in our circumstances, but in the expectation of our coming king. Look with me at verse, verse 5. He says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now in the Hebrew, that word then is actually a very emphatic word. It's not just a passing word that he fit in there for whatever reason. It means kind of an on that day, looking forward to a specific time in the future when this thing that he says, that God will come, then on that day, these things will happen. Notice how he says that, that the, blind, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. What does that sound like? We saw that happen. We saw that when Jesus came. That's Jesus' ministry that they're looking forward to. We see a fulfillment of that in Jesus. If you remember when uh, John the Baptist sent his, his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting for? Are you the one that is to come? Are you the Messiah that was promised back in Genesis that we have been waiting these thousands of years for? And this is Jesus' answer. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach to them. 700 years before Jesus came, God is instructing Isaiah to write these words to the people of God, calling them to look forward in expectation of what he would do. And we see this promise fulfilled in Jesus. We see the promise fulfilled when Jesus enters into our desert, the desert of humanity, of our suffering, of our pain. And he brings healing. He brings salvation. He brings those things that are truly and deeply and ultimately our cause for joy. So Jesus came and did that, and we, we read the scriptures, and we see, now we're, we're 2,000 years past that. Jesus, yes, he healed the blind and the lame and the deaf while he was here, but they're still with us. We still have the deaf and the blind. We still struggle with sickness and disease. Jesus came and he died on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin. Yet we still, every one of us, still struggle against sin. And we ask, 
Why? If Jesus came to do this, to beat, to conquer sin and death and sickness, why do we still struggle with those things? It's a legitimate question. Because when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. When you read through the Gospels, he talks about how the kingdom has come, but he also talks about how the kingdom is coming. It's a phrase that you'll hear us say quite a bit. It's the already, not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. Church, we live in a good time in history because we have things that the Old Testament saints didn't have. We have the completed scriptures. We look back on, on the things that Jesus did while they only had these, they had signs and shadows and things that pointed forward, yet they didn't have all the detail that we have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit today that convicts us of sin and encourages us and helps us to grow. The kingdom of God has come, but the kingdom of God is coming more fully. We still wait for that day when we see the kingdom of God in its fullness. Just like the Old Testament saints were expecting the coming of the Messiah, we are expecting the second coming of our king. And church, on that day, this is the good news. When he comes again, every trace of that desert will be wiped out. There will be no more desert. Revelation 21 explains that day, describes that day. He says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Right now, we still struggle against death and disease and sin. That's not going to last forever. We have the expectation that our king is coming to set things right finally, fully, once and for all. And that's where our hope lies. That's where our joy should be rooted in. My question is, how often do you spend time dwelling on that? How often do you think about that hope and let that impact how you approach life, how you live life, rather than just the things that are bearing down on you now. We should all do it more. We can all look more forward to the coming of our King. So we know our circumstances are difficult. We know that life is hard. We know that it often feels like a desert. We also know that, that, that our King is coming. There's this promise, but there's still a temptation to doubt and to wonder, how can I know for sure that all of these wonderful things are going to happen? How can I know that these things are going to come true? Look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The section talks about the way of holiness. Holiness is to be set apart. In this case, set apart to be a member of the people of God, to be saved, to be a Christian. 
This is the way of the redeemed, the way of those that God has set apart for himself. Isaiah is going back to imagery. He started off painting this picture of this, this dry and barren desert that's now blooming and blossoming because of the goodness of God. And now he's coming back and he's showing us that there's a path, there's a road through this desert. And the road leads to Zion. And when scripture talks about Zion, it's often using that as language to talk about the city of God, the ultimate destination of the people of God, where we're going, where we will be in the presence of God forever. We are the people of God. We're on this path, and the, the, this path is protected. He talks about no lions or beasts shall be there. So it doesn't matter how, how persecuted we might be. It doesn't matter how ridiculed we might be, whatever arrows and things that the enemy or the world could throw against us. If we are on that path because God has placed us on that path, we are protected. We cannot be damaged. We cannot be destroyed. It also says that no one is allowed on this path that's unclean. And we know it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that if we are remaining in our sin, if we are refusing over and over again, offer of salvation in Jesus, if we are rejecting him, it means that we're not on that path. Those who reject Jesus repeatedly are not headed towards Zion, church. Because we're on that path that we can have confidence that God will do what he has promised. It's because of that that we can have joy. That first part of Isaiah 35 is so packed full of joy and gladness, and then it ends the same way, full of joy and gladness. He ends the poem by talking about the people of God returning to Zion, where they will have not just joy, but everlasting joy, unending joy and gladness. The sorrow and sighing of life will flee away. Do you see how similar that is to the promise that we read in Revelation 21? the same hope the old testament saints were looking forward to that same hope that we're looking forward to today eternity in the presence of god but here's the really good news it's god who does it look at verse 9 it says that the redeemed shall walk on the path to zion Verse 10 says, it's the ransomed of the Lord that shall return to Zion. Both of those words are passive. Both of those indicate things that are done for us. If you are a child of God, it's because you have been redeemed by God, not because you redeemed yourself. You have been ransomed by God. You did not ransom yourself. God has saved those who are on that path, who are on the way of holiness. That is good news for us because it's not dependent on us. In fact, verse 8 says, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Every single one of us can say in some way, at some time, we are fools. And we prove it when we go after anything other than God. We follow our sinful desires and we stray and we wander and our faith wanes and we get distracted. Yet if we're on that path, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but it means that God, through his Holy Spirit, he calls us back. He convicts us of sin. He gives us the ability to repent of our sin. He keeps us on that way of holiness. 
It's good news because if God has placed us on that road through the desert, he will keep us there. It's not a road that we get to walk on if we are smart enough, if we're wise enough, if we're good enough. It's a road that we get to walk on if God has, out of his good grace and mercy, has chosen to place us on, he keeps us on. That's why we can have confidence. Because our God is able to do that. Because he is good and gracious. Because he's a God who keeps his promises. Because our king is coming. Our job as the church is to repeatedly go back to passages like this. And this is all throughout the scriptures that remind us of these promises of God, of this truth, because we're going to keep feeling beat down. The world is not going to get easier. But our God is good and his promises are true. We've already seen that because we've seen the prophecy fulfilled in the fact that Jesus came. He healed the blind and the sick and the lame. He has come. He entered our desert. He inaugurated that kingdom. Jesus came and he broke those chains of sin and bondage. So we no longer have to be bound by sin and we no longer have to be crushed by the weight of that sin. Jesus came and he broke the power of death when he rose again as the first fruits. And now we have that same inheritance, that same thing to look forward to. If he's done that, if we know that Jesus has come, we can also know that he's coming again. Isaiah 35 is calling us to look forward to that day, that then. The Old Testament saints, yes, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And they saw that fulfillment when Jesus came. But there's a, a fuller fulfillment when Jesus comes again. And when that healing is permanent forever for all those who are on the way of holiness. Church, that's our hope. Our joy is not rooted in where we are right now. It can't be. Our circumstances are constantly changing. One day it might be great, the next day it's awful. But if we know what's waiting for us, if we know who is coming back, that our King, our Savior, our God is coming to save us, then we can absolutely have joy in the midst of that struggle. And we know that that joy is going to be infinitely deeper, infinitely better than it ever could be now. When we see him face to face, church, that is our hope. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your promises. We thank you for the fulfilled promises that we have seen in Christ. We thank you that you have saved your people from sin. We thank you that you are sanctifying us, that you are working in our lives day by day. We thank you that what we see around us in this world that's so affected by the fall is not all there is. But that we have this hope of eternity with you. We have this hope of Zion. We have this hope of the day where you will wipe every tear away. Lord, help us to know it. Help us to believe it. Help us to encourage each other in that truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, 
please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.